All right, we saved the greeting time for now because I have a special question for you. So will you stand up, introduce yourself to your neighbor and ask them if they weren't at church this morning where they would be? you can have a seat. Hey, nicely done. I'm getting to know your neighbors. Sometimes we say hi and we get shy and sit down. You guys were awesome. So I thought I'd tell you, if I wasn't at church today, I would be in the mountains. That is the place that I feel oftentimes closest to God is when I'm out in nature. And there's something about seeing the massiveness of the mountains and the clear blue of the water that just really does something inside of my heart. Uh, back in June, we got the chance to spend the, a whole week out in nature when we went to Park City, Utah, celebrating my father-in-law's 80th birthday. And while we were there, we did all sorts of things. We went hiking, we went stand-up paddleboarding, we played some disc golf. And one day we got to go to Olympic Park in Park City, and we were standing at the top of a mountain getting ready to go down on an alpine slide when I saw a man in front of us with a shirt on with this gorgeous mountain scene and his shirt said this, I'd rather be in the mountains thinking about God than thinking, be in church thinking about the mountains. And I had two thoughts. The first was, hmm, I don't know about that. And the second was, amen, <laughs> me too. You know, it got me thinking. After we were in Park City, we were back for a week and then we got to go to Maine for a couple weeks, another place that just a lot of time outdoors. And it got me thinking if I feel so close to God when I'm outside, why do we go to church? And the real question was, why do I go to church? And I thought that would be a good question for you to think about. Why do you come to church? Maybe think about the flip side of that. When you're not here, why aren't you coming? In light of those ponderings, I thought it'd be interesting to look up some research on why people don't go to church, why we don't go to church. And here's what I found. We think church services are boring or unfulfilling. We don't see the need to go to church because it doesn't meet our needs. We have other commitments that are higher priority. We don't think church holds the same appeal it once did. We don't like how churches are run. And we don't like that conflict happens in churches. We need some downtime on the weekend because we're so stressed from our work and family schedules. I can relate to most of those, at least at one point or other in my life. And I bet that most of you can as well. But it started to really bother me and make me sad when I realized 
some of my reasons for not going to church. And I started to wonder what happened, what changed that the life of the early Christians that we read about where things were vibrant and alive and they were committed to this thing of church. Why has that changed? We're in the middle of a sermon series on worship where we're looking at some of those questions. Why do we go to church? What does worship look like? What does God have for us when we gather together in this space and throughout the week? Last week, Larry started the series by talking about kind of the big why worship piece spoke out a revelation. Great message. If you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go back and listen. This morning, I want us to spend some time in Acts to really dig into some of the nitty gritty of what happened when the church came together to worship. And I want you to know that you're not gonna hear me use that word worship very much throughout this morning, but all of the elements I'm talking about lead us back to lifting ourselves up to honor and glorify God. So before we get to our passage, which is gonna be Acts 2, 42 through 47, I feel like I need to give you some background so you know what's happening leading up to today's story. So in, back in John, we hear that Jesus lived. And he spent his time talking about the kingdom, spent a lot of time with his disciples. We saw miracles. We saw all, all sorts of things come out of his ministry. And then we know that he was crucified, that he, was, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again three days later, and that when he rose again, he appeared to his disciples. Acts, the beginning of Acts, picks up there. So Jesus is hanging out with his disciples or his apostles, and he spends about 40 days with them. And I was wondering why, why 40 days? I just wonder if it took him that long to be like, oh yeah, you really are here. You know, like, can I touch you again? Can I touch you again? So he spent this time with them, and he really spent his time doing things that were similar to what he had done before he died. He talked about the kingdom of God. Something was a little bit different this time though. Before he was talking about the kingdom of God that was coming, after his resurrection, Christ's resurrection and defeat of death brought one element of the kingdom here to earth. It was the first piece of the kingdom breaking through. And then Jesus started talking about this other element that was still coming. It was the second breaking through of the kingdom. And it was this thing or this person of the Holy Spirit. And the people at that time had no idea what he was talking about. It was this foreign idea of God is sending, you know, God's gonna take me, I'm gonna go up into heaven. And then, but don't worry, God's gonna leave this person of the Holy Spirit behind, this, this thing of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are thinking about this. They're spending time with Jesus. Jesus ascends into heaven. They're all there. They watch him go. And then I'm sure they're standing there like, so when's this Holy Spirit thing come? So they're standing there and then I, nothing happened. And so they decided that they should probably go back to where they were staying, which was in Jerusalem. They're staying in a house on the upper floor. We know it as the upper room. And they spent about 50 days waiting. I don't know about you, but if I have to wait for an hour, I'm like, oh, I was really patient. I mean, 50 days is a long, that's a long time. You know, they're waiting for this thing that sounds so exciting. You got, think about it, like here, they went through this process where they were with Jesus and he died and he came back and then he left again. And they're like, how can you leave? And what do we do without you? And he says, don't worry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring another aspect of God to you. And then they just wait. Well, a couple things that happened during that time. There's this little side mention of the fact that 
Um, one of the things, one of the um, things that had to be fulfilled, one of the prophecies that, that was fulfilled was that Jesus did come to earth as the Messiah and die and rise again. But another piece of the prophecy that happened that hadn't been fulfilled yet was taking care of getting Judas out of the original 12 disciples. So the prophet said that somebody would betray Jesus. We know that that was Judas and that he needed to be replaced. So Peter gathered everyone while they were in this waiting time and said, hey, we need to, we need to follow through on this fulfillment. We need to out Judas and we need to bring somebody else in. So they kicked Judas out. They cast lots, that's how they voted. And they picked Matthias to be the 12th disciple. So that happened. Outside of that, all we know that they did for 50 days was pray and wait and pray and wait and pray and wait. On the 50th day, they were all gathered together in the same spot, everyone was there. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came. We know that day as Pentecost. And something amazing, unimaginable um, happened. And it was this very physical um, thing so that they could experience what was going on. And it was a wind. It was a, it was a huge wind that blew not only through the room they were staying in, but through the whole house. And then after, as that wind was coming, the disciples described being able to see these flames of tongues coming down out of the sky and landing on each person that was there. And suddenly they were able to speak in languages that weren't their own, all different languages from all different nations. And I think Larry talked about this a little bit last time, but you gotta realize that their houses weren't like our houses. Our houses, we go inside, we've got our glass up on our windows, we close the door, we pull down our blinds, nobody can see what we're doing, nobody can hear what we're doing. That's not the case here. These are probably openings in the window, no curtains, no glass. You can see and hear everything. So imagine, here are all of these people in Jerusalem that happen to be gathered at that time that are from all these different nations, and they hear, coming out of the house that these disciples are staying in, they hear their native tongues. And they have two reactions. So there's thousands of people around that are hearing this. First reaction is, hey, something's going on. You're speaking my language. Like, you don't speak my language. How can you speak my language? Almost this curiosity, this awe, this excitement. Then there's the other group. The other group is like, you are off your rocker and I'm pretty sure you had too much wine to drink and you are acting drunk. You're drunk. And I wonder if we react both ways when we think about the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's watching this. He's watching this reaction. There's, again, there's thousands of people and he thinks to himself, I probably need to explain what's going on. <clears throat> so he stands up and he says, hey, we're not drunk. That's not what's happening here. The prophecy that was given about God sending his son who would come and live and die and be resurrected again, that happened that Messiah, that was Jesus. That guy we all hung out with, the one you all saw, that happened. That prophecy was fulfilled. And hey, now the second prophecy, the second part of the prophecy was fulfilled where he promised to leave behind his Holy Spirit, a gift from God, an aspect of God for us to understand and to get to know. 
We're not drunk. We're filled with that Holy Spirit. And you can know that because we're doing things we weren't able to do before. We're able to speak in your native tongue. When the people heard that, they started to kind of think about things differently. And then Peter hits them below the belt in a really appropriate way. He says, hey, by the way, you are the ones, you who are sitting here, crucified the very Messiah that we're talking about. You're responsible for his death. And these people had this overwhelming brokenness and grief, realizing what they had done. And in that moment, they, they repented and they were baptized on the spot because they wanted to show that they had changed and that they were new and that they finally understood. And then the Holy Spirit descended on them as well. Here's the thing though. So you hear that story and you're like, that's amazing. It's inconceivable. But the really amazing thing is what the Holy Spirit actually did during that period of time. And that was to develop the church. Church didn't exist until the Holy Spirit came and said to a group of individuals, I'm going to change you from the inside out so that instead of being the broken, self-centered, self-focused people that we, you are because of our broken humanity, I'm going to change something in you so that all of a sudden you're all in for everybody. You're working together as a team. You're not worried about your needs and your wants. You're worried about and concerned about the whole. In that moment, that miracle of the church was that the Holy Spirit dropped little bits of glue on all of us and then stuck us all together. That's what's happening leading up to our passage this morning. So the question that comes out of that, that I think we need to look at a little bit, is what is church? And when we look at our passage, kind of leading up, we see that the church is three things. Actually, let me back up and talk about what the church isn't, because I think that's important first. We have images in our head of what the church is. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's not a hierarchy. It's not a staff. A church isn't someplace we go. It's something we do. And scripture tells us three things about the church. It says this, the church is a gathering of Christ followers who have been baptized in their faith and filled with the Holy Spirit, who work corporately versus individually, and who are bringing the kingdom of God by being the hands and feet of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit came upon that early church, something completely changed and they received that glue that we were just talking about. Those selfish individuals came together as a group. So there was that shift and we talked about that a minute ago. All of a sudden, these individuals went from being um, a place that you go to engage with God to being a group of people that do something together. So then the question is, well, what did they do? How did they do church? What's that look like? Our passage today talks about four different things that they did. And we're gonna do some corporate things this morning because I feel really convicted that oftentimes 
you've got one person up here and you've got a bunch of people out there and it's like this give and take. I want us to do some of this together because we're talking about the unity of the church. So I'm actually gonna ask you to stand so that we can read this morning's passage together. It's from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there's really four things when we go back to kind of the first sentence there. There's really four things um, that happen that describe what the church is. And I wanna go back for a second and give you um, one more definition of the church that I think really will help us clearly see kind of what this passage lays out for us. And it's a quote from Lloyd Ogilvie. And it says this, the church is the fellowship of those given by Christ to be to each other what he has been to them, so that together they can be to the whole world a demonstration of the new humanity he died and lives to make possible. This passage is really gonna talk about four things that we do to be the church, and it really captures it in the first line. Um, It's apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But if you look up there, Before, in that first line, before we even get to those four things, there's a word in there that pops out. And when we're reading scripture, oftentimes this happens where something grabs our attention and it's worth looking at a little bit. What's the word that pops out? Devoted. I think it's important for us to stop for a minute and do some research on what does that word devoted mean? So let's start with a dictionary definition. It's actually the word devote. First thing to notice is it's a verb, so it's an action word, and it says this, to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to a person, activity, or cause, to attend to constantly. This is the idea of something really grabbing your heart. So I want you to think for a minute. What grabs your heart? What are you devoted to in your life? For some of us, I think it's our work. That's where we're all in, is when we go to our job day in, day out. For some, it's our family. For some of us, it's alcohol or pornography. For some of us, we're devoted to shame. The thing that grabs our attention is the fact that we keep replaying the old tapes in our head that tell us that we're not enough. All of a sudden, as I was thinking about the things that grab my attention, I realized, well, of course my life doesn't look like that of the early church because I'm not devoted to the same things they were devoted to. So what does it look like to be devoted to those things? 
Let's look at each one and see if we can get a little bit of an idea of what it looked like in their period of time, but then how we can apply it to us as well. So apostles teaching. Apostles teaching was the foundational teaching about Jesus. You gotta think about the fact that they didn't have Bibles, right? We pick up our Bibles, we wanna read scripture, that's what we do. In that time and in that culture, first of all, most people didn't know how to read. Second of all, if they did know how to read, there was access to probably one scroll that had the writing on it. So when you're talking about thousands of people that just had this realization that Jesus was the Lord Jesus Christ and not just a guy that they hung out with, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit changed them and they were hungry for information about God, hungry for information about their faith. So they showed up and sat at the feet of the apostles to learn about Christ. They were devoted because there wasn't any other, there wasn't any other option. It was an oral culture. If you wanna learn, you're gonna show up again and again and again. And that's what they did. I think it's just as important for us today to show up at the apostles' feet, to listen to scripture, to learn whether it's on a Sunday morning in a service or during a small group study or in a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study, it's really important for us to come back and be devoted to that same teaching. The reason it's important is because scripture is truth. And I'm not talking about where the gray areas, some of these spaces where we agree to disagree, there has to be a foundational truth that we come back to and that's found in the Bible. And when we don't spend time corporately coming back to that truth, we create our own truth and our own reality. It's a very, very dangerous place for us to be. I'm gonna have us do an exercise to illustrate that. Anyone not know the story of Little Red Riding Hood? Awesome. All right, so here's what I want you to do. You've got 30 seconds to retell yourself the story of Little Red Riding Hood in your head. Make sure you include the details. Ready, go. Did you get it? That wasn't quite 30 seconds, but I figure we say it faster in our heads. All right, anybody get, um, well, hold on. Now I'm gonna read it to you. So I want you to, as I'm reading it, I want you to think about what you missed, all right? One day, Little Red Riding Hood's mother said to her, take this basket of goodies to your grandma's cottage, but don't talk to strangers on the way. Promising not to, Little Red Riding Hood skipped off. On her way, she met the big bad wolf who asked, where are you going, little girl? To my grandma's, Mr. Wolf, she answered. The big bad wolf then ran to her grandmother's cottage much before Little Red Riding Hood and knocked on the door. When grandma opened the door, he locked her up in the cupboard. The wicked wolf then wore grandma's clothes and lay on her bed waiting for Little Red Riding Hood. When Little Red Riding Hood reached the cottage, she entered and went to grandma's bedside. My, what big eyes you have, grandma, she said in surprise. All the better to see you with, my dear, replied the wolf. My, what big ears you have, Grandma, said Little Red Riding Hood. All the better to hear you with, my dear, said the wolf. What big teeth you have, Grandma, said Little Red Riding Hood. All the better to eat you with, growled the wolf, pouncing on her. Little Red Riding Hood screamed and the woodcutters in the forest came running to the cottage. They beat the big bad wolf and rescued Grandma from the cupboard. Grandma hugged Little Red Riding Hood with joy. 
The big bad wolf ran away never to be seen again. Little Red Riding Hood had learned her lesson and never spoke to strangers ever again. All right, how many people got the entire story right word for word? What? How many people missed a number of details? Anybody miss a whole bunch of details? Like you're not sure you even really know the story of Little Red Riding Hood? So here's the thing. Just like the story of Little Red Riding Hood, the longer we're away from it, the more we miss the details. The longer we're away from the truth of scripture, the more we miss the details. And instead of it being the true story, we create our own story. We're filling in the gaps because of our own experiences, our own past, and it's no longer the gospel. We need to continue to sit at the apostles' feet because if we don't continue to find the truth of the Bible, the truth of scripture, the truth of the good news of Jesus, we will create our own story that's not the right story. So I would argue apostles' teaching is still relevant for us today, vitally so. Second thing, second thing they were devoted to was fellowship. What, when you get the word fellowship, when you hear the word fellowship at our church or you know, other churches you've visited, what image do you have in your mind? What do you do when you're having fellowship? You eat coffee or you drink coffee and eat donuts. That's not what this word meant for the early disciples. Fellowship actually came from a word, koinoi, help me. There you go, thank you. Which means common, sharing, being a partner. Fellowship for them was all about together. I'm gonna go back to the story I was telling earlier about West Africa and praying for the Kendalls and the West African missionaries. When you go to Africa where the Kendalls live, everything is about community. There's no individualism. You all live in the same area. You wash your clothes together you eat together, you go to school together. Everything is done as a community. The early church didn't know church without together. There was no such thing as an individualistic faith. It it was a community faith. When we look at fellowship, we think it's a nice time for us in our individualistic view of who God is and the truth that seems to apply to us. Fellowship then becomes a time to show up with other people to listen to what their truth is. We've lost the gift of community and of corporate worship because we've lost the gift of doing things together. But I don't think that gives us an out. I think it just means we may need to work harder to figure out what that fellowship looks like. We weren't intended to do life alone. The Trinity models that for us. It's not just God, it's God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. There's something about that that's for us to grasp and to understand. When we don't do things together as a church, we miss out. If you're not here when I'm grieving, I don't, I'm not reminded of the fact that Jesus has risen and God is still on his throne. And that even when life feels hard for me, that's not the end of the story. When we don't do life together, when we don't fellowship, when things are going well, I don't have you in my life to celebrate the ways that God is working in me, through me and around the world. When you're not in my life and I've got something in my life that's skewed, 
I'm sinning someplace or I am messing up and I can't see it, I need you. I need you to help me see it so I can get back on track. Fellowship is really, really important. That's why we put such a big emphasis on our small groups campaign. It doesn't matter if you're single, if you're married, if you're old, if you're young, if you're male, if you're female. If you are a total mess or you feel like life is going pretty well, we have a place for you. We want you to be in community because we know that it's, just, it's not just that the early church was devoted to it. We know that something supernatural happens when we come together in that vulnerable space where we let other people into our lives. That's the fellowship that the first church experienced and we're so devoted to. And it's the same one that we have access to if we allow the Holy Spirit to work inside of us. Third thing, so we had teaching, we had uh, fellowship. Third thing that the early church was committed to that I think we need to be committed to as well is the breaking of bread. In this passage, you may read the breaking of bread and think that they're just having a common meal. They're just sharing, sharing food together. Um, but commentaries agree that this really points to the fact that they were sharing in the Lord's Supper or communion. Here's the beauty of the Lord's Supper for that early church. That was a form of worship. That was the highest form of worship. That was the reminder that they were partaking of Christ's body and his blood because he had died for them and that there's hope in the fact that he's risen. That was worship for them. That was vulnerability to say, ah, I screwed up again. I'm screwing up again. I'm screwing up and I'm screwing up. But I know that your grace has me. I come again and again to confess and to partake of the bread and wine as, as your body and your blood because it reminds me of your amazing grace and what you have in store for us. Again, I think the same thing waits for us. I think that we have the chance to go before the Lord when we take communion to say, ah, I, I messed it up again. And I think that we have an opportunity to, to not just do that as individuals. It's easy for me to say, ah, oh, I screwed up, you know, this, that, or the other in my life. But I think it's an opportunity for us to pray corporately as well. Where are we screwing up as a community? Where are we screwing up as a nation? Where are we screwing up as a world? And how can we come before Christ and acknowledge that? And then accept, this, that, accept his saving grace. The early church was so devoted to it as a form of worship. So what does it look like for us to do the same? You know, I was thinking about this. Because we, um, because we live in a world that is so concentrated on being able to find the answers to everything, these four things are hard because they're, they're a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's a supernatural work. And that actually takes us into our fourth focus. So again, we did teaching, we did fellowship, we did Lord's Supper. The fourth is prayer. When we think of prayer, oftentimes I think it's, you know, a list of, hey, here's what I need, or here's what I'm sorry about. For the early church, yes, it was absolutely communication with God, but it was this Holy Spirit experience. 
It was this indwelling of this peace of God that gave them the supernatural ability to communicate in a way that they couldn't see, touch, or feel. It was this very unique experience that again, I think we've lost because of our culture. If you go back to Africa, same place that the Kendalls live, the spiritual world is alive and well. And I'll tell you, those people pray differently because of that. There are things that manifest themselves in West Africa that we've only read about in the Bible and haven't seen for ourselves. To the point that they're not afraid of the supernatural. They have witch doctors that will sell you nuggets or trinkets that you can hold on to that will protect you from the different supernatural forces at work. Those people pray differently because they believe that the Holy Spirit and the supernatural world exists. Why don't we? You know, we followers of Jesus, it's pretty easy for us to land on faith and say, I believe that God created the universe, which if you think about is incredible, but we're, we're willing to put our faith in that. We know that God created the world. We know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we just kind of stick him over here and we, and we don't know what to do. So we really don't even focus on that. The Holy Spirit is a third of God. He's an element of God. If we're leaving out the Holy Spirit, we're missing pieces of who God is. In fact, we're missing the part of God that claims to be the comforter and the one that gives us the power. We have access to the same power to change the world in the name of Jesus that the early church did. I just don't think we ever access it. I think we've opted out. It's too hard, it's too scary, and we can't find a reason for it on our smartphones. We have access to God through the Holy Spirit, through prayer. And if we step into that, he has incredible things waiting for us. Look back at the early church. Man, when they all came together and they repented and they were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit, People outside of the Christian community were drawn in because they were like, something is going on and I want a piece of that. What if something was going on here and our neighborhood was like, I don't know what's happening over there, but I need that. That's the power of prayer that we have access to if we just tap into it. All right, so we got these four things. We know what the church does. We know the church is supposed to do something and not just be a place to come. We know that part of what they do, what the church does is um, teaching, fellowship, sharing in the Lord's Supper and prayer. But then the question is, what does that mean for us and why should we go to church? And I wanna suggest two reasons. The first is that we need the church and the second is that the church needs us. Let me unwrap both of those for you for a minute. We need the church we need the church so we can learn scripture and understand more and more about the love, and God, love of God. We need the church so we can experience the vertical love of God and the horizontal love, grace, and compassion of others. We need the church to share in the blood of Christ, unifying us as we admit our sins individually and corporately. We need the church so we can lift our voices to God together, petitioning on behalf of those who can't petition themselves 
and celebrating all that God continues to do in and through us. We need the church because our faith is nothing without it. The church is plan A. There's no plan B. We need the church. Second part, the church needs us. The church needs us to not just say the mission and vision of Waterstone, but to actually do it. Our mission is to advance God's kingdom for God's glory. And our vision is to be a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. What if we couldn't just repeat that back, but we were, we were actually outliving it? The church needs us because if we don't do it, nobody will. The church needs us whether we're broken, whether we're hurting, whether things are going well. The church needs us whether we're young or we're old, whether we're new in our faith or we've been Christians for a long time. The church needs us when we're a train wreck. The church needs us to be vulnerable. The church needs every single person in here because if everybody doesn't participate, then the body, the church is missing an arm. And then we're not functioning in the fullness of who God made us to be. The church needs us because we are the hope of the world and he's asked us to step in to advance his kingdom, landing on the fact that we can trust that the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit brought God's kingdom here on earth and he's empowered us to go out and be that to the world. The church needs you. So let me take us back to the very beginning. Why go to church? And let me tell you a little bit about my answer. David and I have attended Waterstone for 22 years. I was 12 when we started. Come on, give me something. <laughs> 22 years. And when we first started coming, this was the first church that I ever was a member of. I grew up going to church on holidays, but I, I, did, I wasn't ever part of a, a community. And when we were going, when we, when we were first started, David was the youth pastor here. And I would come week after week and um, people didn't know my name. So I was known as David's wife. And that really hurt my heart. Here I had this job where I was leading in the education system. I'd been on, in all of these experiences in college and post-college where people knew my name. And all of a sudden I was in the church, this place that, was, that I thought was supposed to love and care for me. And I felt so hurt because I felt invisible. So I didn't come. The youth kids would call me on a Sunday morning and they'd say, hey, are you coming to church? I'd be like... Um, no, but I'll see you at youth group on Wednesday. It was, really, it was really hard. It was a hard time of my life. About 10 years after that, I had another hard. And it had to do with a conflict that I had with somebody. Actually, it was a conflict that I had with several people. And I was deeply, deeply, deeply injured, deeply wounded. And I didn't go to church again. It was really hard to come week in and week out and come face to face with that conflict. And so I just opted out. But here's the thing. I'm still a broken mess when it comes to church. I'm still very self-focused. There are weeks that I come to church because I am an extrovert and I need interaction with other adults. 
You introverts are like, don't talk to her on a Sunday morning. (laughs) She may need to talk to me. I come to church sometimes to hear the worship music because I think it'll make me feel good. Sometimes I come to church to hear the sermon because I want my intellect challenged. And so I come. Sometimes I come to church because I wanna put my money in the offering because then I have the illusion that I'm changing the world and that that makes me feel good about myself. We all come to church with our selfish focuses. But man, there's something about coming for 22 years and practicing those four elements that the early church practiced that Waterstone is so committed to that has changed my view of church. And I can now tell you that I am in love with the church. It is a mess. You're a mess and I'm a mess. We are a mess. But man, I love you. When we were in Maine, uh, the second part of our vacation, I was kayaking on a Sunday, thinking about the t-shirt we read earlier. And all of a sudden I was like, ah, I miss church. It's not about the building of Waterstone. It's about all of you. You have glue on you. I have glue on me. God stuck us all together. And man, you've made a difference in my life. And that's what church is. It's what we do together. So I have a challenge for us. What if we as a body were committed to church and devoted to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer in the way the early church was? What if you decided to live into the truth that we need the church and the church needs us? What if we prayed for a transformation that helped us shift from being self-centered to Holy Spirit-centered? What if we prayed for a transformation that helped us shift from being attendees of church to being devotees that act like the church? What if we allowed the Holy Spirit to enter our lives and be the change we talk about wanting to see in our community and world? That's what the Holy Spirit has to offer us. All we have to do is ask. I wanna challenge us to do that this morning. I wanna give us space to do that by asking you to stand so we can read a corporate prayer of confession together. Will you do that now, please? Let's pray. O King and Father, your son died and was raised up in power. Now enable us to die to our sin in repentance so we may rise to new life in him. We confess to you, Lord, though you should guide us, we inform ourselves. Though you should rule us, we control ourselves. Though you should fulfill us, we console ourselves. We think your truth too high, your will too hard, your power too remote, your love too free, but they are not. And without them, we are of all people most miserable. Now heal our confused minds with your word. Heal our divided wills with your law. Heal our troubled consciences with your love. Heal our anxious hearts with your presence all for the sake of your son who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. You may be seated.
thought it was fitting with this morning's sermon that it happened to be Communion Sunday and a chance for us to actually practice that corporate worship that we just learned about. I also thought it was fitting that the team set up the elements up front because imagine a huge loaf of bread and one glass that we all get to partake of. And also imagine the messiness of that. If you're a germaphobe, that sounds horrifying. But that's what we're called to do. We're a mess. We're called to do messy together. You know, for some of you, it is chaotic because you have to get up and navigate through the rows to get over to the lines. It's messy. For some of you, taking the time to reflect means you have to look at the hard stuff that's going on in your life. You have to hit that reset button and realize that you don't have it all together. Communion's a mess. But we're a mess who has a God who loves us so much that he sent his son for us to die the death we should have died and rose again so that we could live the life he should have lived. And so this morning, as we partake of the elements, I wanna invite you in to give fully of yourself, to ask for the Holy Spirit to work inside of you. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, regardless of where you worship, we would love to have you take communion with us. And if you're still on that journey trying to figure out what you think about God, we're gonna put a prayer up on the screen that you can kind of pray through. This is an exciting time. This is a reminder of Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us. This is a unified moment for us as a church. So I'm gonna ask you to do one more thing with me and you don't need to stand up this time. I'll have you sit. But oftentimes when we um, do the communion scripture reading, we just say it from up front. Really wanna emphasize that we're all sticky We're all stuck together. And so I would love for us to say it together this morning. So will you read the communion passage with me and then I'll hand the elements out to the ushers. um, And then when you're ready, you may go take communion across the room. Let's read. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.